0: Funding for The Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to The Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Sonia Hudson, political reporter with K-U-E-R, Lindsey Whitehurst, reporter with the Associated Press, and Matt Canham, senior reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. So glad to be with you all this evening. A lot happening in the state and around the country in politics. But I'll tell you one consistent thing we're talking about is vaccines. And so, so Lindsay, we'll start with you for a minute. It's been a week since President Biden put out his vaccine requirement for a certain size businesses, business a certain number of employers. How is that being received now in the state of Utah and what are they planning to do?
1: Well, there's certainly a number of folks um, in the Utah government that don't love this idea. Utah lawmakers are a lot of folks kind of it's an interesting needle to thread, right? A, there are a good number of leaders here who say, get the vaccine. That's the way out of this. But we don't want to mandate it. We don't want to make people. It's it's in some ways a similar paradigm to mask wearing, right, is that especially early on, not so much now, but early on, there was sort of that message that we encourage everyone to wear it, but we don't want to make anybody do it. And it's a little bit of a, a fine line to walk right? And and so, so that's that's been the conversation so far, is what do we do about this and and, and what our business is going to do? Are businesses going to want to go to court? Is that something that, that large businesses are going to want to deal with? Or perhaps there's a little more go-along to get along? I think there's still a lot of wait-and-see there.
0: Yeah, so Matt, as we wait-and-see, it's interesting our legislature's looking at options for sure. There's a October 4th meeting scheduled for people to give input on this, but it's not entirely clear what those options Are FOR OUR ELECTED OFFICIALS?
2: Well, TO START, THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION NEEDS TO ACTUALLY PRESENT THE RULE. THEY MADE AN ANNOUNCEMENT BUT HAVEN'T GIVEN US THE DETAILS. AND THAT'S WHY WE'RE IN A LITTLE BIT OF A LIMBO. OUR ATTORNEY GENERAL IS READY TO SUE, BUT HE DOESN'T KNOW WHAT HE'S SUING FOR OR AGAINST. WE HAVE THE LEGISLATURE WHO WANTS TO TAKE ACTION. BUT EXACTLY WHAT THAT MEANS, WHAT THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION HAS SAID IS IF YOU WORK FOR A COMPANY THAT HAS 100 EMPLOYEES OR MORE, YOU HAVE TO GET VACCINATED OR GET TESTED WEEKLY but there's a lot of rules that can go around that. How do you enforce it? You know, when does it start? There's a lot of things that we don't know yet. And so you have Republican leaders ready to take action, but there's nothing to take action against yet. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think one thing we saw with masks was, you know, people fall into groups where they, they're they definitely going to wear it or they're definitely not. And then there's a group in the middle that maybe doesn't feel like it, but but if once it's a rule, they say, oh, well, I'll do it. I, I, I think a similar dynamic may play out with vaccines that that if there are folks who really don't want to get vaccinated, there's probably a way they can find to do that. You know, this is so far you know, people with more than 100, businesses with more than 100 employees. There are smaller businesses that don't have that rule. So so there are gonna be different ways that this will play out. The other kind of nuance here that I think will be sort of interesting is we have a labor shortage issue in, in Utah. And so, so especially in healthcare, even fairly small numbers of, of people who are really determined not to get it, that, that could end up being an issue, especially for some of those employers that are really under pressure right now. So there's a lot of different factors to play out here, I think still.
0: For sure, so you look like you had a comment.
3: Yeah, I mean, the other thing I think we haven't talked about yet is just what options does Utah have to push back against this? Our leadership has made it abundantly clear that they want to. Um, You know, like Matt said, our attorney general, Sean Reyes, is ready to file a lawsuit against it. Um, But just based on um, stuff that I've seen from legal experts, it's not entirely clear how much standing an individual state would have to do that. If a business who is the one that's being directly impacted, directly, you know, harmed, by this mandate, they would have a lot more standing to sue, um, potentially, than the state. Also, legislatively, I mean, the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution kind of um, ties the state's hand a little bit, because this would clearly fall under the federal government's law, takes precedent over state law, um, if they were to try to circumvent circumvent this with a state bill.
0: Uh, which leads to Sonia, to your point about these businesses. We just talked about them for just a moment. What are businesses going to do? We, we see some groups. It was interesting. We saw the, the National Guard, Utah National Guard, saying they're going to require vaccines. But what are you seeing from the business community itself? If it is left to them, let's say some of our businesses, a lot of them under 100 um, employees, what are they doing right now? What are they talking to you about for their plans going forward?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, businesses under 100 employees, this mandate doesn't apply to them. So... Um, But in terms of larger employees, um, I think that there is kind of a sense and this, again, to connect it back to masks like Lindsay was doing. um, It's the same kind of thing where just these regular employees have to be enforcers of public health rules, Um, you know, enforcing masks, enforcing vaccines at the door. I think there's a lot of pushback against that, uh, particularly because that's not a super attractive job to people. And that's especially concerning because there is a labor shortage.
0: Mm-hmm. So this is leading a little bit to this discussion, this really hot uh, over the last couple of days, Lindsay. Talking about s- certain treatments. Okay, we talk about the mandates, we talk about the masks, but Utah is also talking about the treatments themselves. This this monoclonal antibody uh, treatment for people who do have COVID. Talk about what our elected officials are looking at there, because there seems to be some serious supporters.
1: Mm-hmm. And and Senate President Stuart Adams, he's a big one. Um, he he's uh, a real booster of this treatment, which it does seem to be some evidence uh, that that it is an effective helper, at least. And, um, and you know, I, to my mind, more treatments is, is always good and, and prevention is even better, right? That, that if, if we can avoid more fewer people getting COVID to begin with, that seems like it's an, an even even better way to, to, to handle this crisis.
2: Well, I, I want to go ahead, Matt. I was just gonna say that this treatment is an interesting one because its goal is to stop you from having to go to the hospital, but you only get it after you're sick. The people who get this treatment are people who have the coronavirus and have certain, they score high enough on a test of their age, what kind of health conditions they have that they can get this treatment. We only get a certain number of these treatments in a, in a shipment and it's controlled by the federal government. So Intermountain Healthcare has a tent outside where yeah. 50 people can get these infusions <clears> a day. And the goal is to reduce the number of people hospitalized. It's helpful to, you know, when we're talking about trying to make sure our hospitals aren't overrun. But this treatment doesn't stop the spread of the coronavirus. Yeah. You only get it if you have it. Yeah, so
0: Sonia, this is an interesting kind of public policy issue right here. So this is that old that old saying right there, do you want to put guardrails at the top of the cliff or the ambulance at the bottom of it, which is a little bit of the difficulty for this right here is this treatment's available, but our public officials, but certainly the medical community is trying to say, yes, it's a treatment, but this is not does not say uh, we should not get our vaccine because that's the best policy, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, what I've heard from doctors and from the medical community is like, yes, this is an effective treatment. Um, It keeps people out of the hospital. Of course, we should be using it where we need to. But the concern is that focusing too much on it, according to these doctors, could potentially prevent people from getting vaccinated because some people may see this as an alternative to getting vaccinated. Um, But at the end of the day, this is a lot more expensive. It's a lot more time consuming. Um, We talked earlier about how there is a labor shortage in the healthcare field right now. Um, So, What's a lot easier, faster and, you know, more effective potentially is just getting vaccinated. And so there's a concern among medical professionals that too much of a focus on this treatment could prevent people from getting vaccinated, which in the long run is a much better solution than this monoclonal antibody treatment.
0: Lindsay, what are you hearing in the community? Because it's just so interesting to hear these elected officials pushing certain treatment options and, of course, talking about getting the vaccine. Uh, but you also have the medical side uh, really weighing in on how, this. How, how is this being received in the state of Utah? These two sides trying to come together you know, for the collective good.
1: Um, you know, I think a lot of people are really trying to navigate all of this, right? And and a lot of um, a lot of people are making these kind of small daily decisions about what what's my risk tolerance, what's my I want to get back to a version of normal life, but how do I do that while keeping myself and my family safe? And there is lots of lots of little tiny decisions that people are are, are making more and more often now. And um, and you have to kind of you, you get so many different kinds of messages from so many sources. You have to just kind of mix all of those together and then add in your your own personal situation and you you have to just figure something out and and I'm a parent so I talked to a lot of other parents that are, are just constantly making those those calculations and and just trying to to navigate it and stay safe and stay healthy and, and keep their families healthy so I think I think people are are still really um, kind of going through it and the returning to normal life is really good but also adds a whole nother set
2: of interesting so factors true. to so think true. about. I heard Dr. Angela Dunn with Salt Lake County Health Department talk about this treatment, and one of the points that she made is, you can't get it if you are if you've had the disease for more than seven days. And so, not only do you have to have certain risk factors, it has to be early in the disease life cycle for it to actually have its and you effect. Have,
1: to have been tested so that you right. know have. That's you her haven't. point.
2: You have to get yes. tested. So, if you want to use this treatment and you have a little scratchy throat, if you have a cough, that's when you get tested because this doesn't work when you get seriously sick. Mm -hmm. It's the point is to stop you from getting seriously sick.
0: Really great point, we'll follow this one closely because I think it's gonna continue to be a uh, hot conversation here in the state of Utah. Uh, Matt, while we have you here, I I wanna go to kind of current political kind of rumblings, but it goes all the way back to 2020, which is so interesting. I wanna talk about what's happening in upcoming elections, but it goes back to 2020, so interesting this week. Of course, I, I remember conversations you had with Bob Woodward when he was here, just wrote a book, Peril, which is very interesting. But he talks about Mike Lee, our own Senator Mike Lee, and his involvement and efforts to really go look into uh, whether or not the last that election was kind of um, hijacked in some way or fraudulent in some way.
2: This goes back to January 6th. People might remember the mobs that ransacked the Capitol. This is is about certifying the presidential election, the Electoral College. Mike Lee was a co-chairman of Donald Trump's campaign. He is a Donald Trump supporter. And the Donald Trump White House sent him a memo saying, this is how you can change the Electoral College outcome and give Trump another term. What you do is you throw out every state that sends in two slates of electors. Mm -hmm. And Mike Lee, according to this book, looked into this. He called states and said, what are you seeing on the ground? Are you submitting two slates of electors? What's happening here? That has happened in the past in individual cases. A state has sent two slates of electors. There's been controversy in an individual state. In 2020, during all this talk of voter fraud, no state actually did that. Every state only sent one s- slate of electors. Every state said that what happened in their state was a legitimate election. and so. After the ransacking of the Capitol, when Mike Lee had his time to speak, he actually addressed this on January 6th. You can go back and you can see his speech where he said he called these states. Mm -hmm. Do you have another slate of electors? They didn't. So Mike Lee voted to certify the election, certify that President Joe Biden beat Donald Trump.
0: Well, Lindsey, go and talk about that a little bit because it's true. And it's prompted a tweet from President Trump to Mike Lee and Lindsey Graham, who is part of that as well.
1: He wasn't happy. This was, <laughs> was was the an upshot, and I think, look, this just goes to yet another way that that the past is not past. You know, we are still going. We are still talking about this. We are still going to talk about it. This is very this issue and this controversy is going to continue to be a force in American politics for at least the coming years, and 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 we're we're this is still going to be very much a conversation, um, despite the pandemic, despite yeah. <laughs> immigration, all the other major issues. We we've got going on. This, this is going to keep kind of going on. Um, I, I say in the background, but, but in, for some folks, it's not. It's, it's the foreground. It's still yeah. very much what we're going to be talking about, at least until the midterms and, and possibly until 2024.
0: Yeah. So, so does this surprise you at all? It is interesting. We're pretty far away from that election now, already looking to the next one. Uh, is this recurring theme about the security of elections going to carry forward into this next interim election and to the next presidential election?
3: Absolutely. I mean, just look at the poll data. There are a huge percentage, particularly of Republicans who think that there was widespread fraud in the 2020 election. And, you know, we're almost a year out from that election. And so to me, that's a signal it's definitely not going anywhere. Um, people are still talking about former president Trump running again in 2024. I mean, like Lindsay said, the past is not in the past. Um, People, because Donald Trump is no longer on Twitter, I think uh, people that aren't necessarily paying super close attention would say, oh, you know, he's not relevant anymore. He's not the president. He's not on Twitter. I don't see his tweets anymore. Very, very much still a force in Republican.
0: Politics. I want to reference this uh, this poll that Sonia was referring to for just a minute, Matt, because I think it does give us a little bit of a signal about what's coming. And, and just quickly, the question was, and this is a Desert News Hinkley poll, do you think there is widespread election fraud? Uh, 41% of Utahns said yes, 49% said no. But the interesting part to what Sonia was just talking about was uh, whether or not people in the state of Utah approve or disapprove of someone uh, who objected to the the election results, and this was what was interesting: 56% of Utahns, this finally got above a majority, uh, disapproved of someone who objected to those election results. It's just so interesting. We continue. It sounds like the whole group believes this issue is going to continue all the way into the next election cycle. But Utahns, by and large, at least the majority of them, would object to someone who says that it was a fraud.
2: I find those results to be fascinating and concerning. If you think someone stole the election, you should not be opposed to someone trying to overturn it. If you really believe an election was stolen in the United States, you should fight for that. The concern is you shouldn't believe that because there's no evidence of it. We're a year out. There's no state that has a court case that went forward, that has a report. There's no secretary of state or county clerks who are saying our election was fraudulent. We just had, in Arizona, a months-long hand recount in Maricopa County that Donald Trump was supporting, and it found that the results were what the results were. Biden won that county by a huge margin, huge margin. And that group actually found extra votes for Biden, not for Trump. We're at the point, there is no evidence that there's widespread voter fraud. There it's the same it, it's the same amount of evidence that we have that the earth is flat that we have is that our elections are not Mm -hmm. secure. Our elections are secure.
1: And the finding was that um, that people would disapprove of somebody who objected to the election. Interesting. It, that that would almost seem to be an indication that perhaps there's a little fatigue among mm-hmm. among at least at least a portion of the electorate. Um, so that'll be interesting to see if if that is something that does sort of play out. If if I'm I, I'm going to assume there are probably folks who are a little bit more in the middle. I, I wonder if there is, is some going to end up being a little bit of fatigue around this, especially as those you know the bricks keep keep coming in that wall of 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 look the the election was valid. Mm-hmm. It's gonna to be interesting to see how voters continue to react to that.
0: Yeah. So, Sonia, so, some, some work that you have done I think is interesting because hasn't died in Utah County. We have people already pushing the, the county clerk, Amelia Powers, to do some kind of audit. Of course, she, she disputes what she said about that, but push even for her to audit election results.
3: Yeah, I've actually talked to several county clerks earlier this week, and this is not just a Utah County issue. This is a statewide issue. Um, county clerks have told me that they're just seeing unprecedented numbers of calls, of public records requests, of, you know, requests to tour the facilities to inspect their vote counting machines. Um, and, you know, they're, they're happy to do that. They love talking about how great and secure, you know, their process is in their county. Um, but it's really a statewide issue that is still going on. In fact, Earlier this month, the Utah County clerk held a um, like a town hall night where he answered questions from people about election security. He let people look at the machines. Um, So there's definitely still a very strong ongoing effort to combat all
0: this misinformation. Uh, Sonja, there's an article you wrote recently that talked about uh, voter identification and efforts and a potential bill coming this next legislative session. Talk about that for just a moment because it goes to a little bit to the election security about how private our information is when we are participating in the process.
3: Yeah, it's a little complicated, so bear with me. So basically the context for and the reason that some county clerks want this bill is that, um, like I said, there have been people that have been submitting public records requests, and one of the things that they have requested is the statewide voter rolls, or maybe they're just doing it in their county, but they request these voter rolls, um, which, and then when they compare them to um, the vote tallies and things like that, there seems to be a mismatch between the number of registered voters and the number of people that actually cast their ballot. And so to them, they're like, oh, this is clear evidence of fraud. Um, But if you go and talk to county clerks, there's actually a really simple explanation for why that mismatch exists, and it's because about 30 percent of voter records are private records, so they're not included on those public voter rolls that anyone can can purchase. Um, So one suggestion that um, county clerks have brought to the legislature, and there's actually a draft bill that was uh, discussed last week, it would make all of it would include all of those um private records on the public voter rolls but instead of their name or any identifying information there would be just a randomized number assigned to that person so you would just see like randomized number th- this person you know voted in this precinct on this day you know they voted early whatever um and so you would have a more complete picture of uh of who voted um and who's on the voter roll to kind of alleviate some of that concern um however there is the big caveat that you will never ever be able to match up voter records and um vote tally there yeah so because the voter rolls are just constantly changing people are registering for the first time they're dying they're moving um, they're changing their party affiliation so um they're trying to get a little bit closer to that match but there's never ever going to be a one-to-one match mm-hmm.
0: Of course, all of this, Matt, leads to some redistricting efforts too, because not only are elected officials and people who want to run for office, looking at all the things we just talked about, have to confront the underlying idea that some feel like there is some fraud or there's not privacy in it, but at the same time, we're trying to draw new district lines here in the state of Utah. Our uh, redistricting committee is meeting with people all over the state of Utah, and now is the time when people in the community get to participate a little bit.
2: YES, IF YOU WANT uh, TO DRAW YOUR OWN MAP FOR WHAT YOU THINK SHOULD BE THE CONGRESSIONAL DISTRICTS OR THE STATE HOUSE OR SENATE DISTRICTS OR SCHOOL DISTRICTS, YOU CAN GO TO THE REDISTRICTING WEBSITE, JUST GOOGLE UTAH REDISTRICTING MAPS, YOU CAN yeah. FIND THIS AND YOU CAN DRAW YOUR OWN AND SUBMIT IT. AND THESE COMMITTEE MEMBERS ARE ASKING FOR HELP. THERE ARE MANY WAYS THESE DISTRICTS CAN BE DRAWN. AND SO THEY'RE LOOKING TO ANALYZE THIS. THEY'RE GOING TO TRY TO GET THIS DONE IN SHORT ORDER. This has been a delayed process because the census, which only happens every 10 years, took a little longer to get done. So these districts need to get done so candidates can start jumping in these races and we can have these elections next year.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm just gonna get the numbers so uh, our viewers can go try their maps. All your districts have to have 818,000 people in it. Yes. I mean, it seems so easy, but it is absolutely not, uh, which is why it's so interesting to see what's going to come. And, of course, uh, Lindsay, um, there are people who want to jump in this process, even people in the positions right now, particularly in the 4th Congressional District, that are watching that very closely. That's something Burgess Owens is watching to see if those lines change.
1: Right, and that that district is, of course, has historically been one of the most competitive in the state. Right, has has flipped back and forth. I I think when you see the redistricting, um, I think that probably won't be as competitive going forward. Just a guess, we'll see. <laughs> okay, um. that might happen. <laughs> just just a guess. Um, I, I'm not I'm not staking any money on it right now, but but I think it's a possibility. Um, and I think that uh, that that that's an interesting district, right? And a lot of people are going to be looking at this closely, and and. I, would, I think that some of these maps are going to be cool. I wonder if we could do like a video game around that, right? We can maybe be. Be create that, like like some, some user-generated sort of things.
2: So I think it could be neat. I think the two biggest issues I are... I mean, the, so-
3: the software online does kind of feel like a video game. I was playing around with it, although it's a very difficult video game like we were talking about <laughs> earlier. It, it sounds very simple, but it's actually very difficult.
2: Yeah. <laughs> two things to look at is how they split up Salt Lake County. Is it in three districts? Is it in two? That's a question that they're going to have a lot also the fourth district which is the west side of salt lake county and going into utah county is also where there's been a tremendous amount of growth in our population Mm -hmm. so to lindsay's point why would that become an easier district for burgess owens to win going forward well it has too many people they have to siphon some people out so if you're the republican controlled legislature (coughs) it's going to be fairly easy to identify areas that have in the past been INCLINED TO SUPPORT A DEMOCRAT AND PUT THEM IN ANOTHER DISTRICT SO THAT THOSE NUMBERS, AS YOU SAID, ACTUALLY EQUAL OUT.
0: YEAH. Uh, our, OUR FINAL TOPIC I WANT TO GET INTO JUST FOR A MOMENT, BECAUSE IT'S, it's so, SO PROMINENT IN THE HEADLINES TODAY, TOO. Uh, SO, LINDSAY, I WANT TO TALK ABOUT WHAT'S HAPPENING AT THE BORDER. Uh, U- UTAH HAS BEEN AT THE FOREFRONT SAYING THAT we well, WILL TAKE REFUGEES. I THINK WE'RE GOING TO GET 765 REFUGEES HERE IN THE STATE IN THE NEAR FUTURE. BUT OUR OWN GOVERNOR STARTED TO WEIGH IN ON THE CRISIS at THE BORDER. WHAT IS HE SAYING?
1: He's worried about it. And and a lot of Republicans are. This is, it it is, it is something we've seen some harrowing imagery from, from the border. And, and of course, (coughs) what you see, what you're seeing right now is a lot of Haitian people who have been affected by a massive earthquake that are, are trying to come across. And it's, it's, it's a really difficult situation. Immigration has been a a really really difficult issue in our country for at least a decade now, and this is kind of the latest flashpoint there, right? And and Utah as a state has historically been welcoming of refugees. And when when um, with on Afghanistan, um, the governor put out that letter saying send people here. We want to welcome people, and I think that that culturally speaking, um, that Utah is, is wants to, to welcome people who need help. And 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 heck, we we have we. Have have a need for people too. We're talking about a labor shortage when when you have have jobs to fill. Um, welcoming in more people can can help um, alleviate that issue too so so historically speaking utah has been very welcoming and it'll it'll be interesting to see going forward how that how that kind of plays out with um, with this latest kind of flashpoint that we're mm-hmm.
0: seeing uh sonia you know, our own governor governor cox uh joined uh several other gop governors requesting a meeting with the white house to talk about this uh based on what kind of what lindsay just talked about too why is would a utah governor be helping to lead that particular discussion in the white house and why would would they be inclined to listen?
3: Um, I mean, Governor Cox joined together with a lot of other governors, so I think we see this a lot, right? There's strength in numbers where you see Utah officials, whether it's the governor or the state auditor, um, you know, banding together with people from other states to um, present a big united front to the president. And It's kind of hard to say no to a ton of governors throughout the country that, you know, you're in charge of. Um, And I think the letter is interesting and also just the the commentary that we've gotten from Utah elected officials in general, um, particularly at the federal level, um, is that, you know, they condemn the, the treatment and some of those really awful images that uh, Lindsay was talking about at the border, the treatment of Haitian immigrants. Um, but at the same time, they say that um, there's not enough enforcement on the border. Mm-hmm. So kind of a question for me is, you know, which one is it?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, Matt, it's, it's not just our local elected officials, um, but but our own in our, our last 30 seconds or so, our own Senator Mitt Romney is weighing in quite considerably, calling this a monumental disaster.
2: There's misinformation that has led some of these migrants to try to get across the border, believing that there's a policy change that has shifted. And what Mitt Romney is arguing to the Biden administration is you need to be, have a clear and consistent message so people aren't trying to cross the border thinking they're going to get in. He blames the Biden administration for incentivizing this to happen. And there has been a huge increase in the number of people who have tried to get across the border this year.
0: We'll watch this one closely. Thank you all for your great insights this evening. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to The Hinckley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.